Say someone hands you $52 billion. Cool. But what if you had to spend that money to save an industry? Um, medium? Cool? But still pretty cool. Still not entirely sure exactly how to save that industry? Well, that's how Jacob Felgoy's and Vishnu Kanan's paper comes in. Their recent report called After the Chips Act, The Limits of Reshoring and Next Steps for U.S. Semiconductor Policy explores the tensions and trade-offs inherent in what's going to happen with all the money that the Commerce Department's about to spend. So I'm going to embarrass you two for a second. You guys are in your 20s and I read a lot of papers and this was like in my top three of 2022. So first I want to like congratulate you on that. You did a really, really good job of sort of like living in the uncertainty. And I think one of the things I'm most frustrated in, in a lot of think tank papers is they pretend like they have the answer where degrees of confidence that the paper evinces is like not at all justified by the amount of work or the evidence that's presented in it. So I think that was really cool. And it is a mark of real intellectual maturity that you're able to put this off. Uh, you know, once you get angry enough, I think you can write. If you read enough about a thing, things start to annoy you about that thing. <laughs> and uh, this came from that. It was this weird puzzle. It's the idea that economic dependence is vulnerability. And being the manufacturer of manufacturer of a thing, that's real power. That's kind of the that feels like the zeitgeist that's landed in Washington now. And that's weird to me because it feels like the national security logic of of you know human activity has totally overtaken the economic logic. And somehow this like symmetry in commercial transactions that if I give you money and you give me a thing, we've both walked away um, kind of level, uh, that symmetry's broken down. And so the paper kind of started by looking at that and asking, well, if dependence is vulnerability, that's a problem with no limiting principle. The only answer is to, you know, reduce dependence and you kind of get to like autarky as national security, uh, which seems concerning for, you know, many of the kind of nuanced trade-offs that we've talked about over the course of the last hour. And the CHIPS Act then is also kind of an experiment in this place of uncertainty that based on this puzzle that we haven't really uh, fleshed out and risks that we can't really quantify because we haven't gathered the data or really set targets, um, we've got to spend a whole bunch of money. So that's the origin of the paper. And I don't know if that puzzle is going to be solved by anything other than the CHIPS Act playing out the way it does and people writing histories the way they do. But uh, I, I think for folks thinking about this space, anyone who can clarify that question satisfactorily to me would be a hero. All right. Um, let's do like 60 seconds. What is the CHIPS Act? So the point of it is that Congress was worried about a few different problems related to the semiconductor industry. And so to solve these market failures, they spent about $50 billion in uh, incentives and R&D money to support the semiconductor industry. So one of the really interesting things that your guys' paper raises are the varied and potentially competing goals um, that will end up orienting the um, the ultimate spending of this money. So. Um, Maybe let's just walk through what all three of them are, and then we kind of 
and then we can go one by one in a little more detail of what the sort of nuances and intricacies of achieving those are. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, the policy is pitched as this like really forward looking uh, game changer for the way the U.S. thinks about technology. And, and that may be right, but it's also fundamentally reactive. And, and we think reactive to three things. It's reactive to the shortages that we saw during the COVID pandemic. It's reactive to the kind of ubiquity of Chinese hardware and how American national security officials are concerned about what that might mean for for the U.S. and for uh, allies in other parts of the world. And it's reactive to the political concerns about what China's rise uh, as an economic power means for the United States and the relative decline of America's manufacturing sector. So from those three concerns come three goals, we think. One is to protect the semiconductor supply chain against shocks originating abroad, supply shocks, and we saw those during the COVID pandemic. To second, boost America's international economic competitiveness and to create domestic jobs along, along with that. It's kind of a two-part goal. And the third is to reduce the risk that chips produced abroad are vulnerable to sabotage. And again, in part, this is by building more chips here in the U.S. Aside from appropriating all this money and letting letting the Commerce Department kind of figure it out, is there anything in the let you know what is there in the legislation that Congress put around for kind of you know guardrails to um, have uh, the executive branch see the point of spending this money their way? Yeah, so I'll break this down into two parts. So first, the manufacturing incentives, um, which is basically trying to reshore. Uh, the semiconductor supply chain to the United States. There isn't a, a ton of of restrictions on the Commerce Department. You know, there's there's some due diligence requirements, um, but broadly speaking, they have a lot of flexibility in terms of how they can spend this money. Uh, it doesn't all have to go into fabrication, which is you know these big, expensive uh, manufacturing plants like the one that TSMC is setting up in Arizona, they can spend it on other segments of the supply chain, on materials, for example, on packaging. Um, there are uh, There's some amount of money that's set aside for mature nodes, so older semiconductors, um, but most of it will go likely to support the leading edge. On the R&D side, there is some amount of money that is going to be spent, that is required to be spent on advanced packaging. And then the rest of it is kind of up to the Commerce Department and NIST to, to decide uh, how they want to uh, allocate. Within the manufacturing incentives side, uh, I think Jacob's totally right. They're pretty flexible. They include some nudges toward some of the goals that we're going to talk a little bit more about. Uh, so, for example, there's kind of a requirement that in the application process, companies uh, make commitments to like worker and community uh, oriented like training so that to to do workforce training uh, in partnership with local institutions for example that's kind of an interesting case where the domestic employment piece uh, ties in with the we need to protect this uh, this ecosystem from uh, shocks abroad uh, goal number one uh reducing the supply chain exposure to foreign shocks. If you were going to try to like min-max that one, 
what would it entail and um, what would putting all your eggs in that basket cost you potentially this goal was kind of was the response to covid uh goal at least in in our minds uh and also in actually run it back yeah uh so there's a story behind this goal. Rewind to kind of 2020, 2021, and you have the COVID shocks when you were hearing the term supply chain and chip shortage basically everywhere. At that point, the chip manufacturers were using nearly all of their fab capacity, um, their manufacturing capacity. And the demand boom that we were seeing in chips made it basically uh, extremely difficult for companies to get their hands on these things and manufacture their products. And in addition to that, the concerns in the United States, both about what improvements in Chinese semiconductor technology might mean for long-term military planning and what the worsening U.S.-China relationship would mean for, uh, for a crisis if China, for example, cut off semiconductor exports to the U.S. All of that came together and into goal one to say that we ought to have some proportion of this capacity. We're not really sure how much, but some proportion of it in the United States, or at least somewhere where it can be accessed by American companies or where the end products can get into the hands of American consumers. Just all the things that you need to facilitate uh, the smooth running of an economy. And so to that problem, the CHIPS Act's answer is then we should build manufacturing capacity in the U.S. If not here, then where really there's some conversations about friendshoring, for example, and trying to think about the way you would optimize how you spend each dollar. Like, does it really make sense to spend a whole bunch of money in the U.S. if labor costs are higher, if land costs are higher, and so on? But uh, at its core, I think the the politics kind of drove this piece, and so we end up with the fifty two billion dollars that that Jacob was describing at the top. Um, anything you want to add about reducing supply chain exposure? Supply chain risk involves, can, can be a pretty wide uh, spectrum of things. You could try to achieve maybe what one might call absolute resilience. And what would that be? Well, maybe everything is produced in the United States. That's one extreme. Um, and the other extreme is where maybe nothing except the final product ends up in the U.S., uh, both of those are kind of insecure for different reasons. And so the the challenge with factoring supply chain risk into this as a as a thing that we want to analyze and think about is that people haven't really figured out what the right tolerances are for it's a bit of a confused answer, but people haven't really figured out what the right tolerances are. There's been a lot of discussion about again this fabrication step which is front-end manufacturing. It's the first manufacturing step. Um, and it's what TSMC does in particular. Uh, you know, it's what people usually uh, you know, talk about uh, Samsung doing, for example. Um, but the issue is that this is just one of two manufacture, you know, big manufacturing steps. There's also assembly and test and packaging, back-end manufacturing. And if you're worried about supply chain resilience, you're worried about, you know, maybe some something happening in East Asia that knocks off a bunch of um, a bunch of capacity, you also need to have resilience along the supply chain. 
There's also a heavy concentration in assembly tests and packaging in East Asia. And if you're worried about some kind of natural disaster or geopolitical event or military conflict happening there, then you also need to think about uh, how that situation might impact the other stages of the value chain, including assembly, test, and packaging, also including the materials that are uh, that go into fabrication. For example, you know, there's literally hundreds of chemicals, and also the silicon and the wafers, and it's a a whole process that we need to think about, not just fabrication. I like this line you guys have in there. Um, the supply chain is only as secure as its least secure link. Um, but it, it's it's tricky even because like least secure is, you know, can be defined in a lot of different ways, right? It's like, yes, uh, if something drops out, then like the world will, like you won't be able to make chips anymore, but it may be the sort of thing that you can get up and running in a few weeks or months. Um, or it could be something that would take like a two to three year build out um, to um, to fix. So um, yeah, I mean, these are these are very kind of tricky multivariate um, questions and the and the optimization functions are, are by no means obvious. There's also the question of like, what are you optimizing to your point? What are you optimizing for, right? I, I think in 2020 and 2021, a lot of folks looked at the supply chain being distributed. There's a lot of talk about concentration in East Asia. And so people started optimizing, at least intuitively, for geography. So if stuff is distributed, we should bring it back and that will make it more secure. Uh, sure, uh, up to a point, but bringing it all back and reconcentrating it somewhere else isn't necessarily secure either. Uh, concentrating it in such a way that even if it's in, even if parts of the supply chain are in different countries, but they are linked together by, for example, uh, one of only a couple of major shipping providers who themselves struggled during the pandemic to uh, keep up with demand, that's also a type of vulnerability. And so the, the, the multi-dimensional, if you want to uh, call it that nature of supply chain Resilience and management, I think, really uh, comes to bite folks here. And this is a, a, a good way to talk about our next thing, because, you know, concentrating it all in one place is also not the economical thing to do. Right. This is a globally distributed uh, industry for a reason, which is that it's cheaper um, to make these things in different places where there is sort of specialization. Um, so, you, you know, it's it's it, I guess, comes back. It, it sort of brings us to our second point. Um, you know, given that you know, even the Chinese government, it seems, is like potentially running into a limit of how much they're going to be willing to spend um, to support their domestic semiconductor industry. Uh, it's it's fair to to sort of ask if there will ever be a second tranche for um, uh, for semiconductors in the U.S. So um, I guess with that, let's talk about uh, goal number two, boosting American international economic competitiveness and creating domestic jobs. What's going on here? So this one was really interesting because we started by thinking about competitiveness in part because everyone was saying the word competitiveness. Uh, so there's this fear that the U.S. has, quote unquote, become less competitive internationally, in part because of China's uh, rise, in part because many countries are attuned to 
the risks of uh, not having their own kind of semi uh, advanced technology champions, uh, for lack of a better word, and in part because the U.S. government itself hasn't uh, spent enough time or invested enough money in recent years in thinking about semiconductor R&D. And that connects pretty closely with, I think, a key priority of the Biden administration, which is thinking about the American middle class and its prosperity. And when you put those two things together, the administration has come out and said, we don't just want a foreign policy for the middle class, though that's, I think, an important message. We also want a manufacturing policy and a competitiveness policy that benefits the middle class. So the CHIPS Act is kind of an answer or at least messaged as an answer to that. It says that we're going to invest in semiconductor research and development through things like the Advanced Packaging Center that's in, uh, that's in a component of the CHIPS Act. And that stuff is going to help companies continue to be competitive internationally. But we're also going to build manufacturing capacity in the U.S. and we're going to employ in the U.S. That stuff is supposed to help folks who have been hit by the, the combination of globalization and automation and give them essentially jobs that uh, the administration says are, you know, good paying union jobs, all of the standard buzzwords. But I think here there's a challenge uh, that one, those two things can kind of be in tension with one another. And they're in tension with one another because semiconductors are fundamentally a kind of capital intensive high skill industry. And if you want to compete with China on semiconductors in order to prevent the Chinese government from dominating, you know, uh, advanced nodes that could be potentially useful in military or AI applications, that involves a very different group of people. Uh, and it directs money to a very different group of people than if you want to employ in the United States and your goal is to make sure that you're employing folks who might otherwise be out of a job because of a combination of uh, automation and globalization. So that that's kind of the challenge that we that we isolated, I think. Not all of those jobs in a fab are going to be benefiting the same kinds of people who might have lost a manufacturing job over the past 20 years. Most of those jobs will be going to high-skilled workers, many of whom are going to need masters or PhDs, um, and only a small percent, maybe something like 18% of those jobs are going to be going to low-skilled technical workers. Um, and you can go even further to say, well, how many of those jobs are actually going to be filled by uh, U.S. citizens or U.S. residents? Because at the moment, we don't really have a sufficiently strong talent base to staff the fabs that the CHIPS Act will invest in, which is part of the reason why the Commerce Department is focused so much on workforce development in this space. And so from a workforce perspective or, or from this kind of employment perspective, I think it makes a lot more sense to think about this as a medium to long term play in a high skill sector. Like I just I don't think that talking about this as a solution to America's broader manufacturing uh, employment problem, which we generally associate with with lower skill uh, industries or sectors is the right way to think about it. And so 
then when we think about what could we recommend the government do on this front, admittedly, we flail a little bit, but I think we flail because this is a really hard problem. So we say that like someone ought to be convening scholars that are thinking about this problem. And, and I, I want to be candid about that because that's like the, that's to my mind, uh, what a whole bunch of folks, both here in, in DC and in universities around the country are trying to figure out. And I think what's the scary thing is there aren't many of those scholars out there. Uh, Erica Fuchs at uh, Carnegie Mellon published a paper at uh, uh, through the Brookings Institution saying that um, generously, the intellectual underpinnings to inform technology strategy at the national level are limited. And the extant research provides little guidance on how a nation should make strategic technical decisions across domains while simultaneously looking across multiple national objectives. Um, I mean, I guess, like, you can kind of understand it in that folks didn't imagine that there would be a universe where um, tens of billions of dollars would be sort of up for grabs, I think, until relatively recently. But um, still, I mean, it's a real... Uh, failing and oversight, which, uh, hopefully many, you know, future grad students and PhDs are, are falling into to try to orient their careers around. And I think there are a couple of initiatives to flag here, but they're in early stages, which is part of the reason we don't have a concrete recommendation on this front. So the Hewlett Foundation, the Omidyar, uh, network and, and other funders are thinking about at, at a pretty high level, like what is after neoliberalism or what is an alternative to that model? And whatever your feelings about the word neoliberalism, uh, they, I think they're funding scholars who are thinking about precisely these problems. Like how does the manufacturing sector of the country, how ought it, con ought it to connect to employment and what's the economic uh, framework that should facilitate that type of uh, activity? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, number three, um, the risk of sabotage. Kind of niche one. What's going on there? Yeah. So this is very much a tertiary goal of the CHIPS Act um, and one that was not spoken about as frequently um, as the other two. But it stems from, first of all, uh, general concerns over the past 10 years or so, um, or, or frankly, even longer, uh, about vulnerabilities in our hardware. So, for example, there was the Spectre and the Meltdown vulnerabilities a couple of years ago, um, and those you know didn't weren't necessarily a result of sabotage, but they demonstrate how hardware vulnerabilities can be absolutely devastating for millions of people. And there's also uh, kind of bring in concerns about hardware that originates in China, questions about the provenance of that hardware. Is it is it safe? Uh, was it tested properly? Are there any backdoors or vulnerabilities? 
Um, and some of this, a lot of this is speculation. Uh, there, we have few public examples in, in the open source to demonstrate that this has happened. Um, but it remains a concern. And anecdotally, it seems that there are non-public uh, examples of this happening. Uh, so the CHIPS Act essentially says, um, in particular, the implementation strategy that was put out by the Commerce Department after you know a couple months ago, basically says that the Commerce Department's going to work with DOD, with uh, the uh, Director of National Intelligence, to define requirements for what constitutes secure and assured microelectronics. This is something that the government has been working on for literally decades. Um, so this isn't new, but they're trying to figure out how to incorporate that into the, the new money through the CHIPS Act and make sure that that money is going to build fabs and ecosystems that are safe and secure. And a lot of this uh, stems from the concept that by reshoring production and by taking you know, these additional measures, we can reduce the vulnerabilities of the chips that are provided to U.S. companies and the chips that eventually make their way into the hands of U.S. consumers. Our, our basic thoughts here are that the CHIPS Act is on the right track and that in changing the location of semiconductor manufacturing, you do address a subset of risks related to chip sabotage. And in reshoring manufacturing, you can you know, build a trusted supply chain, but you don't necessarily need to reshore to accomplish that. You know, there are allies around the world who we trust and friendshoring may accomplish, uh, may reduce the risks to a tolerable level. You know, if we're talking about shifting some amount of production, some segment of the, the value chain out of China to other countries, it doesn't necessarily need to come back to the U.S. And I, I think it's worth remembering for folks who think about hardware security or have thought about that problem for a long time, this is something they deal with not really by moving production, right? That's not to say it's a solved problem, but they think about how changes in their manufacturing process can help make the thing more secure. So there are some pro there are some proposals, uh, I think mostly out of uh, parts of academia. I think a, a really good lab at NYU has thought uh, pretty hard about this, where you can essentially try to produce a, you can try to fabricate a chip in two different places, at least break up certain stages into uh, into kind of multi-location manufacturing processes, making, uh, making each stage when it finally comes together a bit more secure because it's harder to either alter the recipe or, or other components that be used to, uh, to produce the finished chip. So I, I think those types of proposals are, are interesting and we recommend in the paper a broader approach to security standards for uh, for hardware that folks at NIST have already been thinking about for a while and I think are are kind of underway on. Yeah, I mean, it's you can even go one bigger level of abstraction and think about like your marginal dollar in securing hardware versus securing software, because what you're optimizing for is not secured hardware, but like a secured, you know, system 
uh, however you want to, um, you know, whether that's sort of military or civilian um, or like, you know, civilian critical infrastructure or whatever. Um, and, you know, this is a paper that I have not read because it's probably impossible. Um, but like, uh, you know, what, because you, you're sort of doing secured manufacturing implies increasing costs. So the extent to which like you're getting more, you know, security or resilience out of, um, you know, spending that on hiring an extra, um, you know, person to test your, to test your network or localize your data or, or whatever have you is I think a really important question because like you the goal isn't secure hardware. The goal is sort of security, um, uh, broadly defined in a, in a sort of complex situation. And, um, just having great chips won't do you any good if, uh, you know, you get completely pwned and, uh, uh, you know, can't, um, you know, press the start button or whatever. And I think that's also a reason, uh, a big reason that folks in the hardware security community, uh, at least at DOD, we're also thinking about counterfeits, right? When you, when you treat the counterfeit problem as similar to the hardware security problem, then uh, it makes the type of cost analysis you're doing uh, a lot easier. Okay. Let's, um, uh, Let's recap with our three strategic dilemmas. You want to? Okay. Uh, so we've got three dilemmas. Uh, we think these are really kind of difficult problems, uh, potentially intractable, but uh, hopefully one could make progress on them with some time and some political breakthroughs. I'll list them out and then we can chat about them. The first is aligning domestic and foreign semiconductor policy. So if you've got a goal that involves domestic employment, and you're thinking about this in a zero-sum fashion as a policymaker, you say, well, every fab I am able to stand up in Arizona or Ohio is good for domestic employment. And that kind of comes into conflict with some of the friendshoring ideas and alliance coordination ideas because countries around the world are vying for uh, standing up fabs in their own in their own jurisdictions. This issue around uh, syncing up domestic and foreign semiconductor policy comes down to the problem that the U.S. wants to invest in its own domestic semiconductor sector. But so do all of our allies. And the worry is that if the U.S. you know passes its $50 billion CHIPS Act, the EU does the same. Taiwan and South Korea and Japan all pass their own versions. So does India, that we might be in a race to the bottom and that uh, we might be starting kicking off a subsidy race with our own allies, which... Uh, doesn't really benefit anyone. Yeah. Number two, ensuring opportunities for the domestic labor force. I guess we talked about this a little bit, you know, on the one, I guess we talked about this a little bit earlier. It's like, yeah, it's nice creating American jobs, but like, look, they're supposed to spend this money in five years. Like there are not enough electrical engineers and plant managers um, that are, have U.S. citizenship for all those jobs to go to Americans. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are clearly going to be investments and it would be nice to create some jobs. Um, but uh, if you want to achieve the other goals, I think it's going to be 
sort of challenging to like super like made in America affy this from a uh, labor force perspective in particular. The third piece and the third strategic dilemma, uh, maybe it's not as much a dilemma as the other two, but it's on the politics of this whole thing. The CHIPS Act was pitched as a kind of one-time investment that's going to attract a whole bunch of private sector money. And we will have, if not, certainly not solved, but materially improved the uh, security and reliability of uh, America's semiconductor supply chains and, and everything it relies on. But the combination of these medium-term employment goals medium-term changes in the technology paradigm that we use to actually manufacture semiconductors, the kind of generation-on-generation generation improvements in the technology that mean you have to, again, modernize equipment or sometimes build whole new fabs. Uh, all of that together suggests that we might actually need more money. And the news over the past couple of weeks, we're, at the, we're in early 2023, the news over the past couple of weeks hasn't been uh, particularly spiriting. The uh, stock prices for these companies are uh, taking pretty big hits. There seems to be a, uh, a glut, even though that the semiconductor glut is now turning into something of a meme. There is some uh, potentially some overcapacity in, in keynotes. And that all raises the question of if we are going to need more money down the line, whether Congress is going to be willing to uh, willing to actually make those appropriations. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting thinking about sort of what, like, like what is the scorecard on which this will be graded? And, you know, we talked about these three goals, um, but yeah, ultimately when you're spending something this big, this isn't some like, you know, happy bipartisan good government initiative that like no one's gonna care about. Um, this will, you know, inevitably turn into some political football. I'm pretty struck by how this involves giving a lot of money to a lot of very profitable companies. And in the run-up to the CHIPS Act, we saw uh, folks like uh, folks primarily on the on the left. So Senator Bernie Sanders, for example, uh, I think made a, a statement or, or put out a couple of press releases to this effect that these are the most profitable companies in the world. Why do they need uh, subsidies? And I think that's actually... Uh, that's a hard question to answer if you don't have the intellectual scaffolding for industrial policy that we're kind of in the process of building uh, as we go. So I think that that challenge is going to come back, especially if you need another round of, of chip money. The, the goal here, as it's been articulated, is to build leading edge capacity in the United States. And the leading edge is constantly moving. What, you know, is currently the leading edge today is not going to be the case even in a year or two, let alone in five or ten. And sure, maybe the the process improvements for semiconductor manufacturing are going to slow down as we kind of approach the limits of Moore's law. You might get more of your of your performance improvements out of uh, really smart design and new transistor architectures. But there are still going to be new kinds of fabs um, that are able to manufacture, you know, the the most leading edge advanced chips, and so the investments we're, we're making now will be, you know, great for a couple of years, 
But at some point, the leading edge is going to move on. And if the goal is to maintain leading edge capacity in the United States, then that's going to almost certainly necessitate new investments down the road. Yeah. So this is going to be a political problem that we're going to have to face at some point. Yeah, I mean, it's um, uh, you sort of alluded to it at the very beginning of like, you know, just how much is this market forces and sort of corporate actors versus something the government really has agency in. It kind of, you know, to an extent reminds me of you know, macroeconomics and the president where, uh, you know, if there's a good jobs day, the president's like, man, awesome jobs, great inflation, lower, um, where, you know, month to month or even year to year, um, you know, th there are cycles which are larger than any uh than, than what any president can do to um uh, to, to turn the dials and it may be the same it may very well be the same with um you know the semiconductor industry where you know it's not obvious to me that if i could you know bestow like a like a 30 percent like boost in like smartness and like execution to um you know pat gelsinger jensen huang or um uh mike Sch mike schmidt who's leading the uh the the chips act like where would i want to like improve the effectiveness to further American, you know, semiconductor competitiveness writ large. It may it may very well be Pat Gelsinger and not the the Chips Act office. Um, if that where is where the sort of like um, you know returns to like better execution um, would be highest. So um, so yeah, no, it's 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 definitely not all in the um, uh, all in the government's hands. Just how this um, uh, turns out and gets perceived uh, three to five years from now. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, all right. So let's come to your, some of your recommendations on exactly, um, what you think the sort of knowledge base and types of thinking that the commerce department should be building in as they're thinking about how to spend all this money. Yeah. So, so maybe I can walk us through, uh, our high level recommendations for what we call this this foundation of semiconductor policy that we think needs to uh, be created. So the, the first step is uh, gathering data, which is essentially supply chain mapping. And it's helpful to maybe frame this as a, a series of questions. So, so the questions that you would want to answer with this step or this piece of the foundation is what choke points exist along the semiconductor value chain? Right now, one of those uh, choke points is essentially that uh, a basically all leading edge manufacturing is concentrated, all leading edge fabrication is concentrated in Taiwan and, and in South Korea. But we also want to know what other choke points might exist along the, the value chain, maybe, for example, in chemicals. We, we also want to know what kinds of choke points might develop over time. To do all of that, we need supply chain mapping. That's the first step. The second step builds on top of that, and that's crisis planning. And the, the questions we want to answer with this piece of the foundation are basically what kinds of crises would trigger each of these choke points? Which of the choke points should we be most worried about? And also, how can we alleviate the most concerning choke points? So, you know, to, to use our example of leading edge manufacturing concentrated in South Korea and Taiwan, providing those companies, TSMC and Samsung, with subsidies to build new fabs at the leading edge in the United States is a pretty good way to alleviate that choke point. And so finally, we get to our third 
this, the third piece of this foundation, which is setting targets. So we have we've done our supply chain mapping, we've gathered the data, we've conducted crisis planning to figure out which choke points we should be most worried about, and now we need to set some kind of target. So that that involves figuring out what we're trying to preserve in the event of a crisis. So you know, for example, if we're, we're worried about a military conflict over Taiwan, what would our objective be? Would we want to make sure that the U.S. military has access to the all the semiconductors it needs to continue, uh, you know, uh, building weapons and planes? Would we want to make sure that U.S. consumers will be able to get access to all of the consumer electronics they need, maybe 50 percent of the consumer electronics they need? Or do we want to maybe focus on U.S. companies that could be selling to U.S. consumers or abroad? There's a lot of different uh, angles to look at this. And in the context of the CHIPS Act specifically, we might want to think about what amount of domestic production along the value chain do we need to reduce the risk to a satisfactory degree? And that's a really broad statement because you kind of have to do all the other stuff first before you can get to setting targets. And these three things, the data, the crisis planning or scenario planning, and the targets, they're all mutually reinforcing. And you can take them even out of just the supply chain context and start to apply that framework to some of the other goals that we uh, talk about as well. So the CHIPS Act has a kind of domestic employment broad objective. It's not clear to me that there is a real target to pin that down. I don't really know what success on that front would look like. But if you said that we wanted growth in X, a given you know region to hit X percent, and that would be success, or we want it to employ Y number of people, uh, or in, in the context that Jacob was talking about, we want domestic fabrication capacity in the United States to equal Z percent of total fab capacity. That can then inform the type of data you gather, the type of crisis planning you do, and all of the questions um, that you're asking along the way. And the administration is due to come out with a continuity of the economy plan at some point, which ties pretty closely into this type of activity. And I'm, I'm, for one, I'm really curious to see what they come out with, because this, to me, is kind of an infinite loop and figuring out which parts of the economy are important, how you crisis plan for them and what types of data you need to be tracking in near real time is a really hard question. But if they can answer that in the context of a continuity of the economy plan, you can then take some of those lessons and apply it to the semiconductor sector specifically. I think it's very much an open question of who exactly should do each of these three things that we just described, the the mapping, the supply chain mapping, the crisis planning, the setting targets. It will definitely need to be an interagency process, but particularly the, the supply chain mapping, there, there are a couple of proposals out there for uh, you know where this could take place. It could be a new bureau um, in the Commerce Department, for example, Maybe on a temporary basis, it could kind of be built into the CHIPS program office. Um, maybe it could be part of a, a larger critical technology analytics program down the road. But 
that's something we're going to have to think about is who exactly is going to do this work and how will they be resourced? So, uh, so yeah, so there, there've been a handful of papers that have come out in the past year. We talked about Erica's, um, SESP had another one, um, about, you know, what the sort of bureaucratic structure would be to make most sense, uh, to do the sort of analysis that we've been talking about. Um, do you and, uh, uh, Jacob and Vishu, do you guys have any hot takes on your, you know, favorite, um, I don't know, organizational structure? Professor Fuchs uh, lays out a proposal that um, that is uh, pretty interesting. It basically would be a network of scholars that the U.S. can draw upon to research questions to do with critical technology analytics. And it's a pretty nimble infrastructure uh, that she's proposing, where uh, the the office that that would do this this uh, analytics work would not necessarily have um, a large staff, but would rather have a series of program managers who are working with this network of scholars. Um, and a, a kind of a common theme between this proposal and uh, the ones that the Special Competitive Studies Project. Uh, lays out in one of their papers is this two-step approach that I want to give Vishnu credit for identifying, which is basically analyzing and then implementing. So uh, in in the case of, of Professor Fuchs's proposal, that's that organization would primarily just analyze um, and leave the actual implementation of uh, a critical technology strategy to other government agencies. The SCSP uh, proposals are uh, primarily doing both of those two things to varying degrees, both analyzing and implementing a uh, critical technology strategy. And uh, I guess briefly, the the proposals that uh, SCSP lays, lays out, the first one is reforming existing institutions in the White House. The second would be uh, these two proposals that were laid, uh, presented in Congress last, sec- last session. Um, for a technology competitiveness council, which would sit in the White House, and then a office of global competition analysis, which would kind of work as a as an external, nonpartisan uh, analytics hub. They also suggested a non governmental entity that could do this work, and also a fully private sector entity, um, and. I, the conclusion that they come to that I, I generally agree with is that you can't just pick one of these. Um, you know, maybe the Technology Competitiveness Council plus the Global Competition Analysis Office is the best single choice, but you probably need uh, multiple organizations that are overlapping each other to achieve the best outcome. Critical technology analysis and implementation probably shouldn't be uh, assigned to just a single organization. We should probably have a whole ecosystem of organizations that are working on this problem. I think that's right. Uh, I was a little, I guess, underwhelmed by the four options. Um, Not because I don't think the the nitty gritty of bureaucratic organization is interesting because it's like clearly deeply consequential, but ultimately this is just like, someone's got to analyze 
someone's got to give policymakers the analysis and then someone has to implement. And I think basically anything will be, any of the four proposals will be an improvement over what we're doing now. The more complicated question to me is what the body of the SCSP paper kind of touches on, but, but I think glazes over a bit, which is how do you define a critical technology? Right? Is this small yard high fence thing that the Biden administration talks about, does that hold up? Is that possible to do, uh, especially when the technologies that we're thinking about are foundational to the economy of the 21st century? I'm not sure that they've satisfactor satisfactorily answered that. And for me, without satisfactorily answering that, it's hard to then you know, create an institution and do all of that analysis. Do you, do you have some? Federal funding by Cake. You receive the federal funding, you can add another.